Today we have a very special guest today. If you guys don't know, we're from here, from the right in Central Valley. And uh, this is considered, man, the most interesting man in Fresno, arguably, man. Uh, tell him why, Dan. So we got legendary DJ Lewis Everick. But not only is he a legendary DJ, he's also the owner of The Vixen, it's The Sunset, MIA, and of course here where we are today, The Woodward. So welcome, man. Um, you've, you're from Fresno, and you built your whole business uh, here in Fresno, man. So... I just want to, before we get started, man, I want to say that it, it really, it's inspiring for, for kids like us, you know, that were from the Valley and a lot of other people from the Valley, man, because a shit ton of people want to leave the Valley and they're like, you know, there's no opportunity here. There's nothing to do here. But um, yeah, somebody that was born and raised here has made a ton of money and had a ton of impact uh, in the community, uh, of course, you know, with the, with the hospitality industry. So uh, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Um, really excited to uh, finally get a chance to talk with you guys. I've watched your podcast grow, and uh, the things you guys are doing is really exciting. And you guys have had some great guests, and I'm just honored to be on and be a part of it. Welcome to the show, man. We're excited. This was one of the ones, actually, believe it or not, when we first started last year, mm-hmm. uh, we like to look at like local business owners, different people to have on the show, and you were the one of the ones we had circled on the list. And uh, for a while, we were just like, I know we have to send a DM, but it's kind of like that nerve-wracking thing where we're like... <laughs> Messaging your idol, messaging the people that are that are doing stuff in the community to make making impacts, man. So we finally mustered up the confidence to send you over a, a DM, man, and it played out well. And I remember when you first responded, we sent it in the group chat like, "Hey, he responded. We're good to go. Let's get the, get it locked in, man." Yeah. So this is one of the ones we're excited for. Uh, both, I know you guys are going to get a lot of stuff at home as well, as far as business knowledge, local community knowledge, and just game in general, man. So we're excited. I know you guys are excited at home. And uh, let's get into it, boys. He was starstruck. I'm going to be real with you. He was a little bit starstruck. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. You know, it's really cool, bro, because like he says, you know, um, all of us are, are in business. And um, it's really cool to see somebody do it at a very, very high level uh, out of Fresno, you know. Um, oftentimes, like for us, you know, like you have to go to like conventions and whatever. And you see a lot of dudes from like fucking L.A., up north, whatever. So it's really cool, dude, when we get to uh, meet people and rough shoulders with somebody that's born and raised here and has done it at a very, very high level, dude. But um, to kind of get into it, man, I know that obviously now we're at a very nice venue, you know, the Woodward, very nice restaurant, badass bar. But it didn't start like that, dude. Um, I know that your background, well, a lot of people probably wouldn't guess where you came from. Um, if they see where you are now, you know, the badass Matt Black AMG outside and all these things, they wouldn't even guess, you know, where, where you're from, dude. So I want to dive into that a little bit. Uh, some of the childhood. Um, How did you get into the hospitality business? Because from my understanding, it's kind of embedded in your DNA almost, right? So uh, maybe let's let's talk a little bit about that, dude. How, how you came up and why the hospitality business was the, the route you chose to take. Well, first off, I really appreciate you guys gassing me up. I mean, it's not, I don't, every day, you guys must have the wrong misconception that people walk up to me and tell me, hey, you're doing a great job. It's quite the contrary. You know, people are always telling me to, uh, you know, I got a gripe to pick with you. I got something negative to yeah. say about your business or what you do or whatever. But it's really nice to hear the, the compliments you guys are giving. Um, you know, it's kind of that imposter syndrome. You know, I don't really feel like I'm really in that position or, mm-hmm. or see myself from that. Uh, point of view that most people might think that, uh, you know, like I walk around thinking I've arrived or made it or have accomplished anything, um, you know, start from very humble beginnings. You know, I, I was obviously born and raised into the restaurant nightlife entertainment business. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned before that my mother was a DJ, you know, my, my biological father was a nightclub promoter and a concert promoter. Uh, my grandparents uh, had owned restaurants and bars and nightclubs. Um, so as a young man, as a young boy, uh, six or seven years old, I was, 
you know, raised into this business where it was just a family business. You know, it's, it's what we did. It's what we knew. Everybody in the family had a position, bartenders, servers, uh, you name it, security, DJs. Uh, we all played a role. And even at a young age, you know, we, you know, got to learn the business from, you know, bussing tables or, you know, helping out in the kitchen, learning all the cuss words from the cooks in the kitchen, <laughs> you know. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, definitely in the the family lineage here to uh, – to, I guess it's not even so much the hospitality. It's like creating something, doing something, and seeing other people really enjoy it. As I think, probably what motivates me even to this day is just to to know that you created something from thin air. You created something from a from a thought or an imagination in your mind, and it actually came to pass. And now other people enjoy it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I I it's hard for me to kind of see myself in the light that you guys are framing, but uh, I guess that's true. And I and I know for other people that I've worked for and worked with. Um, in years past coming up in, in, in my uh, in my field here, uh, there was a lot of guys I had to tell them, even like a, a guy like Bobby Salzar. You know, I remember when uh, I started working for Bobby Salzar in the early 2000s, I told him, I said, dude, you're like a celebrity. Like mm -hmm. people want to see you in your restaurants. He's like, no, no, no. The same kind of thing that I'm telling you guys now. So it's kind of like a full circle moment where like I'm being told by other people that I mean something to other people, which is a great position to be in, you know, um, I, I think now at this stage of my life, it's more about mentoring and, and kind of sharing some of the knowledge. And that's why I do these podcasts. That's why I want to come on with you guys. Is hopefully I can share something or shine something on my upbringing. Uh, troubled, you know, it, it might have been, um, but th there's light at the end of the tunnel. And that's kind of why I like talking with guys like you guys. 100%, man. And it's cool, man, to just to hear about your story, about your come up story. And I've even heard, too, that you were celebrating holidays in and nightclubs, like your holidays, everything was spent in the nightclubs too, right? Yeah, I mean, with, you know, always, you know, all of our family functions always, uh, you know, revolved around food and alcohol and drinking and fun. Not so much alcohol. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. None of my family members were really big into alcohol. But we, because, you know, our family had owned restaurants and nightclubs, most of our holidays were spent in those restaurants and nightclubs. Mm -hmm. So... You know, while most people might be playing in the backyard, Easter egg hunting, well, we were doing our Easter egg hunt inside of a, a nightclub. They're hiding the, the eggs behind. You already uh, got a venue. Why not? Hide, That's crazy. They'd hide, yeah. the, they'd hide the eggs in the walk-in on a keg of beer. They'd hide the eggs, you know, the DJ booth. Um, you know, we'd play security. We'd take cover charges from our family members. So, I mean, it's really like, uh, you know, we were, we were playing in that. It was just a fun thing because we always had access to a venue where, uh, you know, most kids probably wouldn't. And that, that's interesting, bro, because I feel like, Usually people, whenever they grow up in a certain type of industry, whatever it is, right, in business, they, they see the good side of things and they also see the bad side of things. And I feel like you can either go one of two ways where you go into it because you love so much about it, you have experience in it, or you're like, hey, I want nothing to do with any of that. So what went into you choosing the latter where it was like, hey, like you saw the good side, you saw the bad side, and I still want more of it? Well, that's a good point because I think that a lot of what I learned from the early years of my family in restaurants and, and bars and nightclubs was a lot of probably what they did wrong. Mm. You know, you could see from hindsight what what was the reason why it failed. Did it fail because you didn't treat it like a business? Did it fail because uh, you gave away too much? Did it fail because you were too lenient with your family and it was like their refrigerator was the restaurant and that left your, your income statement at a zero or even a loss because... Mm. Um, it, you know, the family business wasn't viewed as a business. It was viewed as a, hey, it's a family free for all. So I think that a lot of early on as a young kid, you know, prior to even 18 years old, I saw a lot of what my family did wrong. Um, but there was a lot of what they did right. And I think that when I started getting into working for people other than the family, um, that's was, was when 
I really learned to hone my skills and watched a lot of great people uh, kind of, uh, you know, mold and shape me into what I've learned today. I, I was having a conversation with another gentleman the other day about, you know, where he's at in his career. And he's at the crossroads where he's been in the business for a long time. He's learned a lot and he wants to turn that corner into being an owner. And I would say to him, it's like, I said, look, you just, you got to do it. You have everything that you need to know. I feel like you're at that point where you're just afraid. The fear is stopping you. Like, mm. when is the right time? And if you wait for the right time, that might mm. pass. It's like, well, when you end up with a diagnosis from the doctor, like cancer, like no one's really prepared to deal with cancer. But when it's at your doorstep and you have to deal with it, you find your mm. way and you get through it. Any type of adversity. So you got to from the mindset of someone who's wondering, should I take that next step from being the employee or the operator or the manager to an owner? You really just have to do it. Uh, and that's what I did. You just, you have to do it because the longer you wait, the longer you're working for someone else. And this is a young man's game. So there's, there's never a right time to start to be an owner. I think for people that really want to do it, you just have to do it. Take the risk, dude. I love um, that, bro. Yeah, it, Fire me know, up over here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, it's true, though, because I feel like a lot of people sometimes, um, you know, the, like greatness awaits that little bit of just taking on that risk. And like you said, figuring it out later. Uh, but one of the things I, I want to touch on that you mentioned slightly, dude, is that you had a, a lot of adversity growing up. You know, you had uh, a lot of adversity growing up. And yet, you know, we're still sitting here in one of your, the badass venues that you pictured at one point and you, you know, kind of brought this, you manifested this into reality. So uh, I want to I talk about that a little bit of adversity because I know that there's going to be a lot of people at home that are, might be in similar situations um, or maybe literally right now in the same exact situation as you. And they're kind of wondering like, man, life is always kind of beating me up. And sometimes I feel like some people don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but obviously you know, you just from talking to you a little bit, you can kind of see your mindset and it that was always the thing for, you, you know, you can always see at the, at the light at the end of the tunnel, but what, what, like, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the, cause I know that you face some big, big adversity, bro. What's some of that, that you've had to overcome? Uh, and maybe talk about how, what you did or what helped you overcome those obstacles and those challenges that the life is always throwing at you. Well, I think to, to kind of paint the picture of like adversity, you know, people now might look at me, um, in 2024 and go, oh, this guy, you know, you mentioned the, the matte black AMG yeah. or you mentioned the BMWs or the Sprinter vans or the trips I take, or whatever I do. Like those things didn't happen overnight. Right. If you could imagine 2005, I was sitting on the side of Shaw out of one of my failing restaurants, completely failing, like I had lost everything. I'm mm. sitting outside myself with my two kids at seven o'clock in the morning with a Smoky Joe with like wood chips in it to smoke on the side of Shaw Avenue and I'm out there selling breakfast burritos for like $2, $3 a piece so that I could make a measly $30, $40 a day to keep things rolling. Like people don't see that. Mm. They didn't see that my first car was a bucket. I mean, it was probably 15 different colors. I could see through the floorboard to the street. Like it, I wasn't, I didn't just jump out the gate in the AMG and, you know, flexing on everyone. The, I think, but through those struggles and, and knowing what it's like to have and then what it's also knowing like to not have, is what keeps me pushing, you know? And I think that people, they, they only see, you know, it's like that iceberg, you know, you only see the top of it. You don't see yeah. how deep that iceberg goes. They don't see what was behind that. And I think that from some of those losses, you know, in 2005, I opened up my own restaurant. And this is after I had worked for 
you know, big companies that owned, you know, 26, 27 locations. I managed 50 to 100 managers. Um, we were doing sales in excess of 20 million a year. And I thought, man, I knew everything. And I went out on my own. I took that leap that I was just mentioning and I lost my ass. Mm. I failed, fell right on my face. Couldn't pay my bills. I lost my car, my house, everything. I, my next job, I was begging friends to get a ride to go to the interviews. Mm. Um, so I think from those losses, it, it keeps you humble. It keeps you knowing in the back of your mind that tomorrow's not promised. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at today, what I do now, I, I, I constantly live in the back of my mind knowing that, and, and I used to operate from fear, but it's not fear anymore that motivates me. Now I'm in a different, I'm in a different bracket now to where my decisions are based off of desires and wants mm -hmm. and more uh, how to challenge myself. But for so long, I lived in fear it was that fear of being back on the side of the road selling breakfast burritos with my two kids before they went to school. That constant fear in the back of my mind is what kept me pushing and kept me going and going and going and knowing that, uh, you know, you can't have the success without some of the failures. Yeah. And that's so powerful, dude, because one of the things that we've asked other guests, too, is um, like you were there freaking with the smoker uh, selling the two, three dollar burritos. And I feel like a lot of people, when they're in that position, they're like, holy shit, you know, this shit ain't for me. Like, I'm going to quit. Um, for you, what was that difference, man, that you were like, you know what? It's not time for me to quit. Like, I can do this. Um, what was that experience for you? Well, during this time, uh, in a couple years prior to that, I got into some trouble. And um, it was, it was uh, stuff that I think a lot of my friends were doing, and, and I might have been doing a little bit more intensively. But I got in trouble behind some drug stuff. And I ended up going to prison. Mm. And during that time in prison, I, you know, sitting there in a prison going, how did I end up here at 18 years old? I realized at that moment, like this, this life, this, this, this fake bullshit life of being a street hustler, uh, you know, this gangster mentality, all the stuff that I learned uh, and listened to in, 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 in the rap music that I listened to as a young kid hey. was all bullshit. <laughs> Sitting in, in, a, in a prison going, I'm 18 years old, this, this can't be the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So immediately after I was released from prison, I had got a job working in a restaurant in, inside of a hotel. And uh, I think that I was successful at the, at the bad life. I was, I was doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously not well enough because I got in trouble, mm -hmm. right? Quite, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but going back from g taking, you know, Going from that point in my life to now being in a restaurant as a busser making $4.25 an hour, it really uh, humbled me and, and also reminded me I never wanted to, to have that life again. I, I knew at that moment that restaurants and, and, and nightlife is what I wanted to do. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy. So I had the mindset when I got out of prison that this is what I'm going to do and I wasn't going to take any no's. So when I was working as a busser, I always viewed uh, my position as I was the owner. I just mm -hmm. happened to be bussing tables at the time. I got a promotion to server because I did so well as a busser and someone's like, hey, you do a really good job serving. Do you want to be a bartender? So that's how things progressed for me mm -hmm. in that. So I ended up getting these good jobs and high level jobs and and, and that led me to buying my own restaurant, the, the loss of the restaurant, selling burritos on the side of the road. And what prevented me from stopping was realizing that was the goal, to keep the, keep the goal in my sights and never give up. And all those experiences led me to this point. So if I would have given up, I would have given up so much. 
you know, and I think a lot of it too was, you know, I was a single father raising two kids at the time. Um, had just, uh, uh, got, uh, another girl who I was dating pregnant at the time and on the way with my third child. So I think a lot of that was the motivation of, I can't go back to the streets Mm -hmm. and there there is no option. Failure is not an option. And so I think that's what kept me pushing. How long at that point, bro, were you, were you working in other restaurants and kind of building up the confidence and not only confidence, but building up the capital and money to open up your first big shop? Like how many years was that in the making you think? Well, I think the, so from 1990, 1998 to to 2005 after I had worked from 1998 to 2005 as a restaurant manager, general manager, busser, server, fine dining, casual dining. Um, I thought I knew everything I needed to know at that point to become an owner. And I think a lot of uh, questions that people ask me, you know, how to be an owner. I think the reason why I failed in 2005 at my restaurant is because I didn't understand the business behind the business. I knew I knew how to to run a restaurant. I knew how to manage a serving staff. I knew how to manage a kitchen, but I didn't know the business behind it. The KPIs. I think, well, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of back-end stuff, lease negotiation, um, taxation, how that works, um, understanding workers' comp, and all these things that go into a business. I think that's where I failed and where maybe a lot of chefs fail. Like a really good cook you know, most likely isn't the right guy to run his own restaurant. A great cook that becomes a chef that says, I have the capital to open a restaurant. They end up failing. The failure rate in this business is quite high. Yeah. It's like 90%. Um, so I think that um, just understanding at that point the business behind the business. So I took, I took a step back from the restaurant business for a while because after I lost, um, I was kind of discouraged in that. And to answering your question about what led to the capital and all that, I started realizing that my time in the restaurant business, I'd met a lot of people. And through meeting a lot of people, um, I started throwing parties. And when I started throwing parties, um, I realized that, man, I, I had something here. I, I threw a party one time. It was like a 70s disco roller rink party that started off at a, at a, at a roller rink and then ended up at a nightclub. And I saw at that moment that the talent that I had to bring people together and party was actually something I could monetize. And so I think in that time in 1998, um, I was promoting at one of Steve Bissell's clubs, who's a local owner of the Standard here now. He had a place called On the Rocks. And um, I started doing like nightclub promotions for him. And so through that, I learned how to monetize my ability to bring people. So cool to see, bro, because if a little recap, right, if you guys are watching this at home, it's important to understand and note that like how much confidence it takes to dust yourself off, get back up, knowing you have a family dependent on you and, and still open up more businesses, but in the same industry, right? I feel like most of the time, if you fail in one industry, it's super easy to be like, you know what? <laughs> like, I'm not going to that industry again. Me. I'm going this way. But yeah. you overcame that. I know also a, a cool thing I want to touch on as well is you grew up Hispanic. You are Hispanic, whether or not people believe it or not at home, <laughs> right? You are Hispanic. Yeah. Uh, you spent some time in prison, did, did some stuff with that, failed business, but then Still who you are, man. Like, we're still here in your venue today, and, and you... Well, yeah, I, I think the confidence, um, we talked about this before we started, was um, my mom. My mom and my grandmother was, like, they gave me this, like, delusional confidence that I could do no wrong. You know, mm-hmm. even even the time where I was um, on my way to prison, it's like my grandma was like, mijo, it's not your fault, you know. <laughs> they, they probably got it wrong, right? That's a Hispanic um, grandma, man. <laughs> my grandma wrote me every day. Every single day she wrote me a letter. Wow. Um, so they they gave me this confidence that no matter what I did, I was just uh, 
worthy of it. I was worthy of something better. I mean, along with, you know, the, our faith in God, you know, my, my mother, my grandmother, like super Bible Belt, Christian, strong women, um, very strong women. I mean, saying that is such, such an under, understatement to, as to who they were in my life. You know, I think that uh, just that having someone in your corner to give you that confidence to always be, you know, gassing you up and always telling you that you're doing good and you're on the right track and that you could do better and you're so great. I think it was just a big um, testament to who they were. They really believed in me because I think that if I didn't have that belief system supporting me, that I wouldn't be able to continue on. I mean, it was just very apparent that having someone in your family, uh, especially your mom and your grandmother, always cheering you on was uh, a big, uh, you know, contribution to my success in anything I did, no matter what it was. Your mother and your grandma were super religious. So one of the things I was wondering kind of down on me is how did that work, man? Like, how did that work where you grew up in a family where kind of going to the clubs and all that stuff, but then you have the religious side of over here? Because I know I, I you know, grew that's, up it's, religious myself. That's a cool question to ask because um, they both can be true. They both can be real. You know, my grandmother, who had owned restaurants and bars for quite some time, she would be in the bar preaching to people, telling people they shouldn't be drinking so much <laughs> and leaving. Then my grandpa, would, my grandpa would run out of, the, out of the back of the bar and be like, what are you doing? Like, quit running these people off. Like, shut up. Um, <laughs> it, it's a weird, um, I always call it like the, the Tupac, uh, Tupac syndrome or something like, you know, Tupac knew right from wrong. You know, he, you know, he'd have a song, you know, about uplifting women. And then he'd have another song about completely, <laughs> when you know, call you <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's completely the other direction. And so I think with me, I think the, the, the beauty of what I got to see was I got to see both, you know, the, the side of the family that might have influenced my path onto prison was different from the other side of the family that was influencing my my you know my way to church so um i I know right from wrong i I know right from wrong and i think that having you know it's like you have people that are street smart people that are book smart i think having a healthy balance of both is very uh, beneficial to, to anybody, you know? So I, I always say, I mean, I, I wish that everybody, you know, you, you go to elementary school, junior high, high school, go to prison for a year <laughs> and then go to college because prison teaches you a lot about self-reliance. It teaches you a lot about respect, teaches you a lot about there's always somebody bigger. I, I don't care who you are, how big you are, how cool you think you are, there's always somebody bigger. And if not somebody bigger, then it's, then it's the guards that are bigger than you. Um, so, you know, having this internal dialogue of right and wrong and, and, and shaping and forming my decisions, you know, almost every decision I make, I run past my mom. I love my mom sometimes. She annoys the shit out of me and she knows that. <laughs> but she challenges me. And I, and I, like, I like the challenge. I like the, I like the difference of opinion. And I wouldn't ask her because I already know what it's, I already know what's going to entail. It's going to be a four-hour conversation. We're going to go round and round. But, you know, my mom will give it to me straight up. So, yeah, the, the difference in, in, you know, having the, the street side and the, 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 the Christian side, I think it really shapes who I am, and I think um, it, it hasn't led me wrong. How did that conversation go when you first told your Christian religious mom that, hey, mom, my purpose in life, what I'm going to do in business, my business route I'm going to take is I'm going to open up a bar, a nightclub. How did that conversation go? Well, I don't think, okay, so I, I wouldn't say so much my mom. I, I don't think that was uh, the difference. Is my, grand, my grandmother and grandfather, who were kind of the pioneers in our family on the bar and restaurant business, my grandpa, to the day that he died, mijo, I always make this joke, he's, he's, he's on his deathbed, he's in the hospital, and this is pretty close to how it happened. 
mijo, just make sure the bartenders don't steal. <laughs> That's literally one of the last things he told me. Keep in, good it, morals around. It was his mantra from day one. He just, <laughs> you know, he would always preach that the bartenders are always going to rip you off. He would, I, I don't know, mijo, you shouldn't get into the restaurant business. The bartenders are just going to steal from you. And literally till his dying day, that's what he said. My grandmother, <laughs> unfortunately, my grandmother, she passed away before all this happened. That's a tough one for me because I, I, she was my best friend, you know, and to see her go, she got cancer and maybe 30 days later she was gone. And so that was a really tough one for me because I always wanted her to see what I've done now, you know. And I get emotional because she was such an influential part, influential part of my life. I remember saying, like, God, I, I know my, my grandma has cancer. I'm like, take someone, take a cousin, take my sister, no <laughs> knock to my sister, but take anybody but my grandmother, you know what I mean? Yeah. And my grandma was the first person to pass away in our family. And we've been very fortunate to have um, a family that's still with us. I mean, we, recently we've lost some family members, which I know is only bound to happen. It's a part of life. But, you know, I wish that she could be here to see what's, what's transpired. But my, my family didn't really have... Um, any uh, feelings one way or the other? It was in our blood, so I think it was second nature to them. I thought you were going to ask, you know, coming from a Christian family and then knowing that you went to prison, and I thought you were going to ask, you know, what was that phone call like to your mom when you said, hey, I just got arrested? Now, that was a very tough... Let's, let's hear that. that. So, yeah, let's yeah, hear that. That was an extremely tough conversation. I remember, and, and what's crazy is today, um, I don't want to mess up your timeline of when this airs, but when we're filming this, I believe it's the 15th of February. So February 13th, 1995, is when I was raided by a huge narcotics enforcement team. They raided me and, uh, you know, obviously took me to jail. And uh, I remember that phone call, having to call my mom. My mom answers the phone. Oh, hi. Hi, babe. Or, or you know, she's like, hello. She didn't say hi, babe. She's like, hello, because it was like from a block number. I'm like, hey, mom, it's me, Lewis. She's oh, hey, honey, how are you? And I'm like, mom, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I'm in jail right now. I just got arrested. She's like, quit messing around. I got stuff to do. I'm like, no, mom, I, I really got arrested. She's like, for what? I said, I was, I was selling drugs. And that was just heartbreaking. You know, just telling your mom that, you know, at, at 18 years old and, and just hearing the pain in her voice. And then obviously everybody, you know, went into action and whatnot. And the second hardest thing I had to hear, I think, from all that bad part was being in the courtroom. You know, we, you know, with attorneys and everything else, we thought that I was going to get probation. But the judge threw out the recommendation of the district attorney and, and my attorneys. We agreed to taking a plea deal, and the judge went a different direction and sent me to prison. And I remember when the judge was explaining, you know, despite the recommendation of the district attorney, I'm going to go out on my own and say that you need to go to California Department of Corrections. And when he said I'd remand you to the California Department of Corrections, I heard the cries of my mom and my grandma. And mm -hmm. I tell you what, it was the most painful thing to just hear this just, just super like deep belly, utter crying fear of their 18 year old kid going on his way to a state prison. That just drops. Yeah. That's that yeah. feeling. It was a lot. Feel. And so, you know, you fast forward to me being a father and when my sons have been in similar situations, it just, you know, seems like the apple didn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> you know, they wanted to, you know, test the path and test the waters and, you know, maybe they didn't end up in prison, but they ended up in some similar situations and, you know, seeing it from the other side, being the, the parent, seeing the kid, I fully felt that pain that they felt, you know.
I thought that's what you were going to ask, but that's that you. That's a, I was going to ask that one next. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a little bit of credit. <laughs> but <laughs> that's interesting, bro. So I know you said a little bit about you mentioned your kids as well, and it's cool because you have your your son Devin here as well. He's running it with you as well, doing a great job. Um, one of the things I've always wondered too is that obviously you have the success now, right? We talked about your come up. We talked about selling burritos on the side, all this stuff, right? But now, fast forward a couple of years later, you're doing really well, right? You you have a really great businesses here in Fresno. How do you keep the fire that you had growing up from not having anything at all? And how do you keep passing that in your family? Like, how do you pass that over to your sons and your business where they have the same fire you had growing up as well, knowing that you yeah, have all the success now? I, I think because, you know, kind of goes back to where it started, like the damage that I did to my own name. Like when I was a little kid, I would, you know, make little drawings, Everick Entertainment, Everick, you know, Enterprises. Um, and, you know, it's no knock to my call it for lack of a better term, my criminal side of the family. Um, you know, I felt like they, they might've tarnished the name and then I went and further tarnished the name. And I, I think it's just this quest to make the name good, you know, to, to be, to be a name that, and I'm not comparing, and I've said this in other episodes of other podcasts, I'm not trying to, you know, put my name in the same uh, context as a Rockefeller or something like that, but someone along those family lines had to say, I'm going to choose to do anything I can come hell or high water to make sure that my family and my kids' kids and their kids' kids are set for life. And I feel like I was the one person in my family to do that. And I, I knew that I would have to sacrifice a lot of myself to get it to that point, to have something tangible to pass off. Because that's ultimately my goal is to, is to one, through what I've learned in coming an adult and young man to an adult and to a father and is to teach my kids that, you know, dad's already touched the stove. It's already hot, I know. So I don't want you to touch it. Sometimes they're going to touch it, and I understand that. But I feel like I have to be the one person in my family to make that Everick name good. So maybe in two generations from now, when you hear the Everick name, you're going to be like, that's a good family. And, and I'll tell you what, in any name, any name that's gone big throughout history, I don't care what name it is, there's been some dirt. And I just hope that dirt never has to carry over to my sons. They'll never have to do those same things that I did to get there. And not only can they see f what I've done in success, because success is measured. I, I, at this point in the game, I don't measure success by money. The money part of it makes a lot of things possible, but there's no success in money. There's success in time. There's success in, in seeing uh, your family live a life, the uh, better life than you had. So I think for me, like the, the term success or reaching success really has nothing to do with money anymore. I'm very, I'm very financially uh, stable. And um, I think now we're playing from a different we're playing from a different mindset where it's not about like before I used to have to be so worried about anything going wrong in any one location because we only had one and that was the full source of income. But now that we have multiple, it gives me more freedom to do it. So it's, it's like if you think about playing Monopoly, like it's like real life Monopoly, you know. You're cool. You got your first, you know, set of houses. Now you got your, you got your whole street bought up, and now you got your set of houses. And then you know that when someone lands on those houses, you're gonna you're gonna cash out. Then you build a hotel. You know, you're gonna cash out. So now we're building hotels. Nice. That's in the in the real life game of Monopoly. Trying to anyway. It's more for the legacy for you then. And that's one thing I wanted to get. I, I know we talked a little bit about off camera about some similar stuff like that. But I understand like throughout building the businesses, throughout building everything. You actually had cancer as well, right? You had cancer. You went through some anxiety stuff. So talk a little bit about that and how you still persisted, man. That seems nuts. Man, so 
<laughs> as I mentioned, my grandmother, my grandfather, before he died, he was like, mijo, the bartender's going to steal from you. Thanks, Grandpa. My grandmother was so adamant, like just freakishly adamant about, mijo, go check your thyroid. Go get your thyroid checked. And I was, I was young. I was healthy. I had no issues with uh, health at all at that point. I was diabetic, um, but I had been diabetic since 2000. And my grandma would always just tell me about my thyroid. I'm like, why is she so on my thyroid? But I, but I, I tell you before, my grandmother was a very religious person, very well in tune with a message from God that shined through her whole family. And, you know, my grandma passed away and it was probably less than a year later. I started developing some really weird symptoms of uh, what's called tachycardia. Your heart rate gets super high and just this huge rush of anxiety. And I'd never experienced anxiety before. And I used to laugh at people that like, come on, dude, anxiety? Like, yeah. it's in your head. Like, get over it. It's nothing that's really going to kill you. Like, get out of your head, snap out of it. And I was just experiencing these, you know, crazy chest pains and like sweating. And it would come out of nowhere. I went to doctors and they, you know, ran blood tests and couldn't figure anything out. And then one day the doctor I was going to was out, had another doctor feeling in. And I went to, uh, I went to him and I was just telling him kind of more of my symptoms, what was going on. I was like, do me a favor, tilt your head back and swallow. So when I tilted my head back and I swallowed, he's like, go to the hospital immediately. He noted, he noticed that there was like this huge mass in my, in my throat. Because I was having problems breathing, and I felt like, you know, uh, I was feeling lightheaded. But what was happening was so big in my throat, uh, this, it wasn't so much the cancer. It was like the different goiters and things that, that land up in your thyroid. And so ended up uh, going to the doctor, and, you know, a couple weeks later, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And it's like, oh, wow. I think That's I was, funny. at the time, I was 35. And to hear you have cancer is just like, oh, it's like, what does that mean? Like. Is life over? Am I going to die now? Like, um, so luckily with the cancer thing, um, it was pretty much remedied by removing the thyroid. So after I had my thyroid removed, um, I had just opened HCK. And I was going through a lot of stress and I was going through a lot of things with HCK. And I remember, uh, you know, I was kind of the, the head of the whole deal and it was a busy weekend. And the doctors literally told me you need to be out for like six weeks. I was back the same day. <laughs> oh. I was at work the same day after. I saw entrepreneur in you right there. Yeah, it was <laughs> like blood was leaking out of my neck. I have a scar here on my neck. It's kind of oh, really yeah. hard to see, but um, yeah, that that was a, a big deal. And I think um, some of the like PTSD from that. I mean, when I tell you that uh, my heart rate would jump to like two hundred, two hundred and ten, oh, just wow. from from being dead asleep. Um, it was the amount of thi my thyroid was just like misfiring. Was it was mm, so shooting so much thyroid uh, uh, hormone into my body that it was causing these thyroid storms. And it's a real thing. It's like you feel like you're having a heart attack, which I did suffer a very minor heart attack. So I think through that, it developed, developed like this medical anxiety that uh, wouldn't, it just cripples me. Like I would love to be in the mountains. I'd love to be fishing. I would love to be traveling. And I couldn't travel. There was one time I was driving up the grapevine and literally stopped halfway up the grapevine and went in reverse and came back down the, the incline of as you're going under the grapevine because I was just so paranoid. And I think that that kind of compounded. And I think that with all the business stuff and, you know, some of the things that have happened in business and losing lux and some other things that led up to that 
created a lot of anxiety, man. And so I really, I look at anxiety now uh, and I feel for people that suffer with it because it's a real thing. Like I, I wish that on no one. It's anxiety is unreal. Yeah. And like you said, bro, you mentioned it a little bit earlier how that's something that not a lot of people know and understand like it to be real, right? A lot of people think about it. It's in your head and especially look at you, man. I mean, I would look at you once alpha male, right? You have all these businesses, you're doing all this great stuff. And there's no way I would ever think of that. Right. And people at home, right. They see you on camera. You come off across as really confident and confident people, man. Most, but the most confident people. Well, so far, you guys have just life, made right? me cry and talk about all the bad stuff. Cause I don't know how alpha that is. <laughs> well, you know what though? Um, uh, two things. One, um, you have you have a like unbelievable come up story, you know. Um, obviously, like if people like Angel likes to say this line, but if people rewind, you know, the past like twenty thirty minutes of the show, um, I, I know that they're gonna be able to see themselves a lot. Uh, single parent, just going just going through shit, you know, just going through life, yeah. uh, the cancer thing, and just have knowing that somebody has made it out of some uh, situation that that they're coming from maybe they have that same thing you know they got the criminal side of the family and the not criminal side of the family and they're maybe kind of teeter-tottering between the both um i think that it's so powerful dude because uh, there's two two lessons that i took from it one was uh um obviously religion plays a big role in life number two is that you said something that i, I don't know if people caught it but when you were, when you came out, you know, when you came out of prison and you were busting tables, you always had the mentality that you were like an owner. You know, like you, you didn't bust tables like, oh shit, fuck this minimum wage job. It's just busting tables. Like in your mind, you always treated it like you were the owner. And um, obviously now, no, we, you are the owner of, of multiple locations, man. So um, I just want to acknowledge those two things. And the last thing, uh, my grandma, you know, the grandma card for me, it's... Uh, she, she, you know, she's battled the cancer, um, and it's, it's been, it's been a tough ride, but she was very much like your grandma, you know, the, the religious, like, mijo, you know, part of the family, and I know that, you know, you mentioned that she didn't really get to see stuff, man, but I want to acknowledge because I think, man, she, she's watching over you, bro, and, you know, she, she, she's really proud of everything you've done, um, and the direction you're taking the, the name, bro, so. No, I, I definitely feel that. I mean, I, I know that, there's no reason I should still be sitting here. I mean, the things that I did in 1995, I should probably still be in prison for. You know, I, the, I, I think that the knowing that, like I said, it's that, that confidence they gave me mm-hmm. allows me to push forward. Uh, but I think, um, you, you know, in business and, and now to where I'm at now, I, I really want to inspire people uh, when I, I let me see how do I say this? When I was coming up, like I was kind of like blacklisted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was people. Oh, he's a criminal, or he's got two kids at a young age, or he's wearing an ankle monitor, or he's a convicted felon. Even to this day, when I sign uh, a new a new lease and go into a business and go get a liquor license for good reason, but I'm just saying to this day, I still have to explain what I did in 1995 as 18 years old. I still have to tell the ABC like it was yesterday what I did in 1995, how long I was in prison, when I was, my record was, you know, when I finished my probation or or, uh, parole. I still have to go back and explain all those things. And I think, like, I'm not trying to get on some soapbox and talk about, you know, uh, what is it, uh, prison reform or stuff like that, but it really does follow you for such a long time. It follows you, and to this day, I still have to explain what I did as a stupid idiot, 18 year old kid, thinking that I was Tupac at the time, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, thinking that I was just some, you know, kingpin drug lord, you know, drug runner type guy. 
I still have to explain that. And, you know, I, I can't, I can't get a firearm. I can't, uh, I can't vote. There's a lot of things that I can't do because of what I did when I was a knucklehead. Mm. Right. And, and I know everybody's kind of familiar with like Jelly Roll. He's taken the whole music scene by storm country rapper, rapper turned country. And I was listening to a podcast he did and, even even now, all the things that he's done, he's in that same position where he still has to explain what he did. So much so he wanted to buy a house in a community where they had a homeowners association that wouldn't allow him to buy this home because of his past criminal history. Crazy. So I think that if the goal of prison is to reform and to, you know, pay your debt to society, then when does that end? You know, when does that stop? When can you start living again? So for me, I know the hoops that I had to jump through to be able to get liquor licenses because a liquor license is a great responsibility. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned this in other pods that I've done, is that people get into this business for the wrong reason and, or maybe not the best reasoning, maybe it's not the wrong reason, but, you know, when you have a liquor license, you're very much so responsible for so many things that, uh, that the normal person wouldn't realize. You know, it's, it's a great responsibility. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if, if someone's done something wrong and they've paid their debt and, and they should be allowed to move past it. And I think that um, maybe maybe going forward as I, you know, look at other things to do, I might probably try to tackle some of that. Not so much like prison reform, but I would like to mentor young kids who might be troubled. And, you know, I, I've always wanted to do that. I haven't had a chance to do that, but I think... That's kind of what I want to do is, as I mentioned, when I was coming up, no one wanted to tell me the things that I needed to do to get here. So I know that for me now, if there's someone out there that's listening to this that wants to know how to start a business, how to start a corporation, how to deal with accounting, how to, you know, whether it be a nightclub or a restaurant or a bar, like I would love to talk to people about that. So I'm always open and available to do that because I want to be that person to someone that I was looking for because a lot of the stuff I had to do trial and error. You know, I just had to find out. And now I'm, I'm fortunate to pass it off to my sons and they can, you know, jump way ahead. I, I heard uh, there, there was another uh, podcast I was listening to the other day and it was talking a lot about how as an entrepreneur, you never really feel like you made it, right? Like the real entrepreneurs who are really making shit happen, they always feel a little bit behind. Like they always feel like maybe they might have a success, they might have a good accomplishment. You, you open up a new restaurant, you open up a new bar, you're doing some good. And then you go right back to the other side of it, right? Where you're always like, damn, I got, I'm so far behind. I don't have the private jet yet. Like my, my name, my last name is not, as big as I want it to be, right? The legacy's not done and the job's never finished. You hear Kobe Bryant always talk about like the job's never done. So just hearing you talk about it, bro, well, it kind of reminds me a lot It's interesting that you bring up Kobe Bryant. Um, in my come up, I was very fortunate to work at a hotel where if you came to Fresno as a celebrity, um, you would stay in this hotel. And so as I started as a busser, server, bartender, I started doing room service as well. And I was very fortunate to meet Kobe Bryant in his first exhibition game here in town. Oh, shoot. I actually took him room service. Yeah, so it was a really cool thing because I, I wasn't really big on who he was. I wasn't really big. I just knew he was a Laker. And I remember going to his room and knocking on his door. It's like when the call came through, you can see on the, this display, it says the room 801. And that was like the presidential suite where he was staying. So I was like, yes, it's that guy you guys are talking about, this Kobe guy. <laughs> and so I take him his room service and, uh, you know, I go into his room and I, I wasn't even nervous because I didn't really know who he was. And uh, he was really cool, and he asked me if I wanted my, uh, his autograph. And I'm like, man, I just want you just to enjoy your food. Is there anything else I can get you? I didn't ask for an autograph. Um, so that's one of those cool things. Like, I'm glad you brought Kobe up because I, I was able to take care of Kobe. I met um, 
even guys like Vicente Fernandez. Um, legend. Banger. Yeah. Legend. Super legend, right? Um, the abuelitas go crazy over that. And back, <laughs> in, back in when I was DJing at my grandparents' nightclubs at 15 years old, uh, we used to play a lot of Vicente Fernandez music because in Fireball, where I DJed at, mm. there was like you had farmers, then you had the guys that worked in the fields, <laughs> and you had you know people coming in from Dos Palos. And it, it, my, par- my grandparents had a really cool nightclub that attracted everybody out there. So I played a lot of Vicente Fernandez music. So I had already known who this guy was. And I met Vicente Fernandez there. I met Keith Sweat there. I met all kinds of guys. uh, Big names right there too. Hitters. Right. Yeah. No. And then, and then fast forward to later, as I started working in promotions, um, I was DJing at a place down the street called row and got a call from a manager of cat Williams and said, cat Williams wants to come and have a place to party after um, his, his show tonight. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll keep it open for him. He's got to hurry because, you know, this is Fresno. We close early. And uh, so finally, Cat Williams pulls up, and we were actually breaking down because the he had gotten there so late. We were actually breaking down for the night. So he comes in, and I'm like, oh, it's Cat Williams. Like, cool. He's like, I said, hey, man. I was, like, making a joke with him. I'm like, look, you know, I'm sorry, but this is Fresno. We got to close down early. <laughs> and I, and I, said, I said something to the fact, like, just because you like you're big, bro, like you don't. Just because you're big in the entertainment, you don't scare me. And he took it the wrong way, mm. and he tried to fight me. Oh shit! That sounds Wait. like some Cat Williams, right? He tried to fight me. <laughs> and what makes it more crazy? Okay, what makes it more crazy is at that time his DJ that was with him started fighting another guy that was with him. I mean, full on brawl. Also, oh, like within each other, there were cats yelling at me right here in my face. Just two feet behind him, his. His DJ and one of their buddies started fist fighting <laughs> like, like a crazy street fight. And then what broke it up was, guess who walked through? Suge Knight. Mm. Suge Knight walked up, and I was like, damn. It's like when Darth Vader walks up in like yeah. Star Wars. It's like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Suge Knight walked up, and, and I don't really fear too many people on this planet, but at that moment, I peed a little bit. And I'm like, <laughs> you, you're big about Tupac, so you kind of know already. Right, yeah, and I was like, this is Suge Knight. And it's almost like, like a Suge bad Knight. joke. It's like yeah. the promoter, the murderer, and Cat Williams walking to a bar. Yeah, like, okay. Wild. That was probably one of the wildest. Uh, and that was all here in Fresno? Yeah, this was at Row. This was oh, at right. Row back years ago here in Fresno on Palm and Knees. Um, and then... Uh, Another time, I had got a phone call from Kevin Hart's manager, and Kevin Hart came and hung out while I was DJing, sat right in front of the DJ booth, and just hung out, had a good time. So, believe it or not, man, there's been a lot of celebrities come through here in, in Fresno. It's been, um, I, I, I think, one of the coolest celebrity moments that I had um, at Fresno at one of my places was when Grizzly Fest, uh, my buddies, uh, they put on Grizzly Fest, and they I knew they were bringing G-Eazy, and um, I ended up hiring a guy named Mark Basie, who is really close with G-Eazy. He's an R&B cat. Mark E. Basie, right? Yeah, Mark E. Basie. He's amazing. Amazing voice, guys. Yeah. No, I love the guy. And I wanted to see him myself, but I knew that if I brought him, that most likely G would slide through. Smart. And um, sure enough, I remember we we knew that there was chatter that he was coming, Uh but that moment where you see him walking through the back door of Lux, and I was like, jean jacket on probably just killed it went and rocked like a 45 minute set for free i mean at that Damn. time he's probably going for 300k yeah. that was when he was popping back yeah. yeah and he walked in and did like a full-on set at lux for free man and that was like man i felt like that was one of the coolest celebrity moments i had ever had man that's huge yeah so obviously a lot of celebrities came through here in fresno most importantly they came through your establishments bros but one of the questions i've always had especially meeting with celebrities is has there ever been a celebrity you met where they didn't really live up to your expectations or the idea you had of the celebrity 
I mean, there was a couple. Uh, I don't, probably don't want to mention names, but I will we'll say this. Out. I, mean, out. I will say this. I mean, uh, Keith Sweat, you broke my heart. You mm. broke my heart, Keith. Keith. Um, I remember, you know, I was really big into R&B, man, and, and seeing Keith Sweat in the restaurant that I was working at. He was coming down to have breakfast, and I ran up to him like, hey, can, can I get your autograph, man? It's like, you're, I'm one of your biggest fans. I love all your music. I think I probably started singing Make It Last Forever or something to him. <laughs> and uh, he's like, not right now. I'll come back. <laughs> and so I thought he was just, you know, you know, blowing me off. He actually did come back, and I was kind of salty, so I kind of was like, I don't want your autograph now. I but, don't want it now. Um, yeah, that's probably only one. I, I met Cheryl Crow, um, went into her room. I uh, don't want to say too much about that. But oh, yeah, what? It was, it was kind Wait, of, what? <laughs> I, I didn't expand on that. I wanted the room and then thought about it. But. <laughs> no, it was just, I don't know, just uh, – Something wasn't right when I went in there, so I left immediately. You're going to get oh, him okay. in trouble, um, mate. You're going to get him in trouble. Yeah, I want to. That story, you just left it open. I, I was like, what, you went in there. To, and... It's probably going to have to stay open. Um, but no, I think, Wait, like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you guys want to talk about it, but Boots in the Park, you know, had a, a great uh, time just working with country artists. You know, as I grew up in hip hop and R&B, um, it's definitely a different uh, tone. It's definitely a different mindset. Uh I don't want to say hostile at times, but, you know, definitely see the difference in how country music works together. And maybe maybe hip hop and R&B has changed now um, because I was really heavy into it in the, in the late, early to the late 90s. But uh, now having this exposure to country music as, as much as I have lately, they really work together, man. It's such a cool, like, family vibe. 100%. And everybody's really centered in Nashville um, and just... You, you know, meeting some of these guys, I mean, seeing guys like Tim McGraw and Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani and Kane Brown and all these guys, I mean, they're, they're just so cool, man. They're so approachable. They're great people. Um, these guys make fun of me. Uh, uh, on that same note, these guys make fun of me so much. I'm the only guy that comes. Every country concert that comes here to Fresno, I'm there. Every boots in the park. I went to the uh, Cody Johnson one, the Kane Brown one, the John Party one, Dustin Lynch. Who makes fun of you? I these, never once made fun of you. These guys are just notorious. I, I'll tell them, hey, bro, let's go. I, pro I probably would have made fun of you, too, if it was two right, years right. ago. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, country music is new to me. I mean, okay, the yeah. Garth Brooks guys and Tim McGraws. I mean, sure. I went to Clovis High, so it was, you know, that was, that was a music soundtrack for, for my era. Um, <laughs> but what turned me on to country music was this guy named Ernest. Ernest, um, he's a he's a big songwriter. He's on tour um, with uh, Morgan Wallen right now, right? Yeah, he does yeah. a lot of stuff with Morgan. So he's written a lot of music that we know other artists sing. But he was actually a rapper, you know, similar oh, to okay. Jelly Roll. He was a rapper, and uh, I can't remember the name that he uh, what he went by. But I started listening to a song he had called Classic, and I was like, man, this just is really like such good writing. It it, it had a familiar like uh, R and B vibe to it, but was with a little country twang. And I, I just started listening to his whole album, man, and I was hooked. And, uh, yeah, that's what really turned me into this new uh, era of country music. So I probably would have laughed at you, too. How did you even get involved with the whole Boots in the Park thing? Because you're the main DJ, right? Mm -hmm. So how did, how did that even, um, obviously, nightclub, nightclub vibes, hip-hop vibes. How did that, how did that well, connection happen? How did you end up in the space? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Um, the president of Boots in the Park is a guy named Steve Thatcher. Who now is one of my greatest friends, man? Is uh, he's, I think we mentor each other, and I think that we sharpen each other. But he had come to Fresno some years ago and did a uh, an event called Wet Electric, and he brought like an electronic festival that was kind of based on a wave pool um, at Island Water Park. And uh, at the time, I was uh, the director of entertainment for a nightclub called Rome, 
and I was also a promoter. I had mentioned to you guys that I had come up in promoting. And so I saw these flyers plastered everywhere for what electric, what electric, what electric. And I started like, I think I grabbed one of the flyers and I'm like, I've had enough. Who's this guy coming to Fresno? Like, this is my town. Like, you got to talk to me first. And I reached out to him and I was kind of hostile. I'm like, man, who are you? What are you doing? Get out of my <laughs> town. Turf, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, to his, to his credit, man, he's such a great, gracious guy. Has no, like, um, if I was him, I'd be flexing on everybody. I'd be punking everybody, but you know who I am? Boots in the Park, you know, Coastal Country Jam, you know, all these big brands that he's built. I'd be punking people left and right, but he's such a gracious, uh, soft-spoken, nice guy. Like, he really stands out in the business because of how great he is. And so just, you know, being his friend and, and it progressing, you know, he had come to my wedding. I'd went to his wedding. We'd taken trips together. And... Just being a fan, man, just looking at someone else with no type of animosity, no type of jealousy, going, man, I'm really in your corner. Like, I want you to do the best you could possibly do. Like, really just cheering for the guy. Um, I, had, I had dabbled in concerts and in lifestyle events and promoting on, a, like, a bigger scale, you know, four or 5,000 people. And uh, so I had, you know, originally, you know, given him my thoughts. And so long story short, you know, he was doing the electronic thing, and he had uh, – had some success, but it wasn't probably the success that he wanted to see. And so one day he hits me up, what do you think about country? And I'm like, country? Like, dude, you're an electronic <laughs> guy. Like, country music? Get out of here. I hate country music. Like, how boring. And he's like, well, what do you think, you know, Fresno and this artist or that artist? And I'm like, hey, man, it's worth a shot. You know, give it a shot. So fast forward now, I mean, after I think it's been, gosh, don't quote me, maybe 10 years of doing it it's really just evolved to this massive brand, this huge festival that's all over the Western United States. And I just keep, you know, watching them grow. And I, I remember at one of the shows, I believe it was in uh, Norco, California, which is very similar to like a Clovis market, huge um, country population, people that dig country music. And I was just saying, you know what? I, I, I DJ, bro. I mean, that's kind of what I did when I was a young man. And I said, I would love to add to the brand because in between the middles of the concert there's like a 30 to 45 minute where the bands change over and i'm like let me come in and, and do my thing give it a shot and he's probably looked at me like i was crazy like i don't know about that but you know <laughs> probably knew i was a little crazy and i'd get mad at him if he didn't but he put me on man and it's been so much fun you know watching his team and how they move and operate and now becoming more integrated with the team not just steve's buddy but more you know I, I think I helped him out with some of the bar uh, operations because of my, my, my background and, you know, working with bars. Um, so I've just been a supporter, man, and he put me on, and it's just been great. Like, I've got my own little fans now, people that know me in other markets when we come to, you know, Scottsdale or Gilbert or Tempe or Phoenix, um, e even, you know, San Diego. So it's been cool, man, just watching this brand grow and as I'm growing with it. So 48 years old, you know, DJing and DJing. rocking crowds that are, you That's know, 30,000 people. And <laughs> yeah. I would love to tell you more about what's going to come, but it's already a huge lineup in, in this uh, run that's about to start here for the springtime. Mm. But we're going to hit it even harder coming back in the fall. So mm. he books these dates out far in advance, so I kind of know a lot that people don't see. You already, you already got the whole year laid out. Yeah. Can, can we get one artist that's upcoming? I can't. I think I already, <laughs> I I already probably there, already said too much already. He said too much, but I'll no, man, I, I love bragging on this dude, man. Sick. He's just so easy to brag on because, you know, I think that, 
you know, in, in the business realm, like people think it's just, especially when you get into entertainment or bars and restaurants, people think it's really glamorous, but it's really not. I know his sleepless nights. I know my sleepless nights. I know the nights that, you know, I'm up till four o'clock in the morning and then turn around and wake up at six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and start it all over again. It's just being relentless and, and never assuming that you can live off your past successes. You're never guaranteed that next success. So in promoting or even concerts, you're only as good as your last event. So if your last event's a bust, then people judge you on that. So it's just this, um, it's just this constant like cycle in your mind of you know building, creating, building, creating, doing, and and you get maybe excitement and fun out of five percent of it. The other ninety-five percent of it is the stress and the risk. And to take the risk, I think, you know, for, for both him and me, I think taking the risk is the difference. You've got to take a risk in this. You can't, you can't sit back. Like, I, I don't just take a weekend and just assume it's going to be slow because it's traditionally slow. We get out there and we push. We create our own luck. And I think that, to his point, like, he could have given up. And I will say this, I mean, maybe taking more of a personal friendship and putting it out on blast, but... He, there was a time that we stood on the beach together when he did an event called Coastal Country Jam, or maybe it was an electronic one, I can't remember, but he was like, I'm done with this. I am so done with this. I hate this. I, I just, it's too stressful. I want to be done with it. And we laugh about that now because... It blew up. It blew up. Like, I think a lot of people, they miss that success because they're right there. They're on the one-yard line, mm-hmm. and they give up. And I think that's the difference being success and failure is just knowing that you got to keep pushing. Because I think for, for guys like us, like for you guys especially, you guys are, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs and doing what you're doing. Like if you stop now, you could stop now and do something else, but you'll always be left with what would have been, mm-hmm. what would have happened, what could I have become. And you really just get one shot. It's so corny. It's so cliche to be like you only get one shot at life or there's only one life to live or life is short. Like it really is true. Because I blink my eyes, I'm 48. I'm gonna blink my eyes again, I'm gonna be 68. Then I'll blink my eyes and never open back up again. So it, it really is, your time is short. So we all have the same 24 hours. What are you gonna do with it? It's hard, yeah, I felt that. Yeah. Drop the bombs. Yeah, and I was like, that's the clip, that was the one right there. I agree too, because for me, like, I, you know, I switched over to entertainment too, and I, you know, I do more like online stuff, and then like just the connections I made just by actually yeah. trying and not having, like, I feel like a lot of people, they take a plan B, and they'll have a plan B, and they'll keep it there, but if you just focus on your plan What kind a, of plan B are we talking about? <laughs> we take plenty of those too. People have that safety net, and then they're so comfortable with it, but if you just go all in on plan A, I feel like that's what the reason. I think that's the problem that. with relationships today. Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, there's always a plan B. Like Another option. Another option. The there's too many options. You have to clear all the options. Mm-hmm. You have to say there is no option. There's no failure and there's no other option. This is what I'm going to do and I'm going to fucking do it. And, and I think that's what it comes down to. You know, it's not, it's not that I'm the smartest guy in the room. It's not that I'm the smartest guy in, in Fresno. I just look at what other smart people do and I, and I, and I emulate that. This is a very, like, restaurant nightlife promotions, uh, social media, um, influencers. It's a very copycat business. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's too many things out there that are just brand new ideas that we've never heard of before. It's just taking an idea and kind of making it better. You know, what separates my brands or my, 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 my restaurants or nightclubs from other places is, is that we just we keep pushing. We go the extra mile. We never accept a slow day for a slow day. 
we always go out and push, we innovate, we improve our technology, we, um, you know, build relationships. I think like the heart and soul, if you had to say the heart and soul of our business, like you have to be passionate. Like I put my heart and my soul into this shit every fucking day. The heart, the heart of my business is probably the people and, and, and our procedures and how we run the company. But the soul of our company is like the hospitality and how we treat people. So I think that with that vision and, and, you know, I get accused of changing. It's like, there's one guy that works for me, man. He's going to hate this. His name's Will. Oh, shit. Big ass dude, 6'4", 270 pounds, security guys, worked for me uh, off and on throughout the years. And he's always fucking with me. He's always talking shit to me, right? And, and, and I love it. I love, I love when people talk shit to me. But he's like, dude, you're always changing your mind. You're always, you say this, and then next day you say that. That's what this business is. If you don't change, if you don't pivot, if you don't move, you're, you're going to fall flat. You're, you're going to be you're going to be that that relic of a of an idea. You're going to be that you know, oh man, homie, in high school you was the man, homie. Like, Damn, with the lyrics too. <laughs> you know, you 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 have to keep pushing, changing, innovating. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, now we fast forward to like what we're doing now with, you know, Vixen and Sunset and now soon to be MIA. And I don't want to take your questions away, but. You know, I think we were probably going to get into yep. that anyway. Yeah, yeah. Is, of course, we're not going to do the same thing at MIA as we're doing at the other two places. You know, we, I look at the market, I look at where we're at, and I also look everywhere else. Like I said, it's a copycat business, so I'm not going to copy someone that's here in Fresno, and I'm not going to fully copy like a carbon copy of somewhere else, somewhere else. But I'm definitely going to look at other markets. You know, Miami or Dallas or Scottsdale or, um, you know, San Diego. Um, even outside of the U.S., I'm looking at other markets and what's cool and what's happening. I'll look at Australia. I'll look at uh, South Africa. I'll look at just, you know, Dubai. I was looking at Dubai last night, just nerding out on Dubai. I probably spent three hours looking at Dubai and what, what's working in Dubai. Well, that's why you're going to bed at four. <laughs> yeah, right? There's no sleep. But I, I look at other places that I think um, – you obviously can't take an idea in Dubai and bring it to Fresno and just think it's going to work. You have to Fresnofy it. You gotta, you, you gotta make it Fresno proof or Fresno accepting because Fresno moves different. Um, so I think that you know the, the constant change and the pivoting and these things—they're all uh, contribute to the success of what we do as business. You know, so I think going forward, um, it's it's making sure that you know the vertical integration of all of our brands. How do we Tell the people that are eating at Woodward on a Saturday night to go visit us at MIA on a, on a Friday. And then on that Friday, MIA, go tell them to go visit Vixen on a Sunday brunch. Or go from a Sunday brunch at Vixen to go visit Sunset on a Thursday. It's, it's finding this ecosystem of all of our brands to work together. And I think that's going to be the real success of what we continue to do going forward is this vertical integration of keeping all of our brands and all the people we know. And maybe even other things that we venture outside of the hospitality business. Mm -hmm barber shops or clothing brands or things like that because we know people we have the cat we have the list of people it's finding other things that kind of fit in that ecosystem mm. you tied them together well man and for the people at home that don't know what mia is i know it's one of your newest projects you have coming up tell us what is mia and how that came to be well how it came to be was i was on my way to nashville um not for any other reason than it was always part of the plan to expand what we do here. Like, I feel like we're maxed out here in Fresno. Like it's not much more we can really do here unless we start going into other business, uh, business areas. 
but I was moving to Nashville. So I, I chose between Nashville and, and Scottsdale were two markets I really wanted to go and say, I think I've got the money now. You know, I, I think um, I'm in a position to where we could do it. It's not that I didn't want to do it. I just know that being undercapitalized, I would have I would have failed. Um, you're going up against some big companies with some deep rooted um, years of experience and know how politics in these markets. But we ended up choos choosing Nashville to go into. But prior to that, maybe two months before that, I had a DJ meeting right over here. And I brought all the DJs that we work with. And, and I'm very proud to say that we probably employ the most DJs at any other company in the Central Valley, really supporting um, their their dreams and goals and aspirations as we give them money to to come and play for us to help fuel uh, their own solo producing DJ careers or what have you. But we had a DJ meeting and I said, well, there's two places in town that I would love to buy. And one of them was Fab in the night in the in the nightclub business and tower and the other was splash i don't think splash was going to sell anytime soon so going back i was on my way to nashville I was going to move there the day after christmas and i'd taken a break from social media for about a week and i was like you know what i just was coming to having some anxiety things and just kind of thinking about this move to nashville and am i ready for it and kind of a little bit of self-doubt and um I turned on my phone after being off for about a week and a half and I, I looked at it and the first thing that popped up was Fab was, their last night was going to be New Year's Eve. And I was like, holy shit. Like two things. is Was this like an omen to like, don't go to Nashville because <laughs> you're going to be like taken away like in some tornado or you're going to fall <laughs> flat on your face. But it was like, that's so crazy because I, I had spoke about this. Like I would love to have that location. So immediately I jumped on the phone and I'm like, it was 1130 at night and I'm calling, you know, asking people, I need this guy's number. Give me the owner's number. So I reached out to him the next day and talked with the owner. He, he sent me to their broker, which ended up being a good friend of mine, Tom Miller, who owns all the press box locations. He also is a real estate agent. And I was like, shit, we got this in the bag. I know Tom well. So I called Tom and it really wasn't in the bag yet. You know, we had to do a little bit of maneuvering to, you know, there was a lot of people trying to get the spot. It's a very iconic location. The two, the gentlemen that, uh, husband and husband team that own that, um, Cisco and Terry, and so cool, man, just dealing with these guys. Long story short, we got the location. And so I ended up putting Nashville on pause. So I, I knew that coming into the tower, even with sunset, you know, we look like these, you know, when you mentioned I was Hispanic or whatever, we look like these guys just coming in trying to be capitalistic pigs and gentrify the situation and just be all about the dollar. I had lived in Tower. I had worked in Tower. I had family that worked in Tower. So coming into Tower was nothing new for me. I knew that people that didn't weren't on the same bus as me and know that I was, they, they don't, it's like, they didn't know me back then, so they just assumed like, that, that I was always rich or I always had whatever. So coming in, I wanted people to be very aware that we wanted to come in to add to, to Tower. Tower's a very cool, eclectic blend of people. And um, so coming in with Sunset, it gave us our, our foot in the door to really see the market. And man, once I've seen what's out there, I, I love it. I love the energy. I love the economics. I love the, I love the just the whole synergy of how that area moves. And so our district's good, it's, it, especially on you go there Friday, Saturday, it's Popping yeah. spot popping. for sure. It's definitely popping. So, you know, we we're so fortunate to get this MIA location, and um, and as I mentioned, working with these two gentlemen, like it's just been so cool. Like, and it's there's no rush. 
I'm not, I'm not rushing. It's not like a financial thing, like where I'm, I'm nervous about it. This is, I think you're going to see the best of what I've ever done before in this location from layout, design, vibe. I'm a very monotone. I only wear black, like I, probably because I'm chubby and I try to hide it, right? <laughs> but I, I'm a very monotone person. I'm not very, even the color pattern here is very, you know, you know, very earth tony and black and white. But this is going to be a huge splash of color. And I think that what we're trying to do is make it very, similar to what people knew fab to be before in 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 who we attract and who we bring out and who we cater to um so i think um i'm really excited about getting this this thing opened up man it's going to be the best I've, I've ever done is it going to be similar to i know before fab right people don't know at home fab was a gay bar right and they had a lot of stuff going on there. they had drag nights that was a big thing they're known for similar vibe or you think you're going to switch it up a little bit but well, so it's like or? you know that's like telling Tom Brady, uh, you know, hey, Tom, you're great at football, but let's, let's try you in lacrosse. You know, I don't know that, I don't know that, that business model. Um, I enjoy it. There's a club in West Hollywood called the Abbey. It's a, it's a bar, actually. It was just there not that long yeah. ago. <laughs> that place is wild. I love it. Like, you perform there, it's, one of, it's one of the top grossing uh, bars in the country. I mean, they and, – and, and it is – it's – I'm pretty sure it's a gay bar. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And they do drag shows. And, you know, I've, I've been in those drag shows. And I'm just like, man, she is hot. Like, <laughs> give me your I wasn't number, doing man. all that, but. Just kind of doing some research, poking around a little bit. I know that Fresno is not always a bar-friendly establishment or, like, a city, right? And they don't make it as easy to open up businesses like that and kind of continue with that. So talk about your struggles there and how you've kind of had to navigate through those <laughs> hoops that make you jump through. Attorneys. I think that's one thing that, you know, when you get to a level of business, um, the more like so in my position now that I'm kind of more removed from those front lines, like I'm not really dealing with the customers as much. I'm not cooking the food. I'm not bartending. I'm not even DJing as much as I used to or even the graphic design. The, the higher you get up in your organization, the further you are away from what really makes it work. Um, and so I deal with a lot of the things that... Um, they're challenging. I mean, uh, trying to, I see, I see what a city's plan is and I see what the plan for a city is and how they want to make certain areas, uh, more club friendly or make the zoning or the conditional use permit. So for, for people that don't know, conditional use permit is, is what we call a CUP. And it basically states like you can operate from this hour to this hour, or you can, uh, you can have dancing or you cannot have dancing. Like, I don't think the average person really realizes that you have to be um, permitted to have dancing or even entertainment in every city has its own set of circumstances and rules. The state has its own guidelines, but the city ordinances kind of supersede. We all have a job to do and I understand, I understand some of their points, but I also see that for a, a city the size of Fresno, we should have a lot more options for yeah. entertainment, things to do. Um, and why we don't, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I would say it's been challenging. I think that I, I mentioned to people before, like there, it's almost like there's a cap on what I want to do. And not everybody wants, there's a lot of people who say, Hey, you want to own a restaurant or bar? I, I've, I've seen studies and podcasts, people going the worst business to ever invest in is a bar or restaurant. And that may be true, but for me, it's not like for me, it's what I love to do. And it's all I know how to do. So the challenge is that 
I've faced since, gosh, 98 to the current. Um, it's almost like uh, that movie Footloose. You know, they, for so long, we had, you had to obtain a dance permit. And you couldn't have dancing if you didn't have a dance permit. Um, so if people would start dancing, you would physically have to stop them. And there was a time where there was a few city officials that would sit outside my business and literally run in like the president was being assassinated oh, because people were dancing. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, don't we have better things to worry about? That's some haterade right there. Yeah, but well, you know what? And I, and I want to touch on haters too because um, haters aren't necessarily a negative thing. It's true. You know, I, I feel that if you're doing, no one's ever hating on someone doing yeah, less than, doing, doing less than You have to be doing right? something for yeah. them. You have to give them a reason to hate. You have to have haters. And if you don't have haters, um, then you're probably not doing enough or doing it, doing it well enough. Um, I really wish that people would, you know, that crab in a bucket mentality is so outdated. It's so scared. It's so pigeonholed into not getting anywhere. I think that we really need to work together to, because I have this great vision for Fresno and I have no, no plans of running for politics it's not what i want to do um i didn't what, what if we put you on the ballot man well writing your name <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I mean i had thoughts of maybe city council but yeah, that's not my cup of tea I'm, I'm a little i'm a little too abrasive for that um probably too opinionated um but i i uh it got me a lot closer to see what really happens i mean like i said there's there's a lot of things where you know to simplify it for me like a server looking at me as an owner going, God, he's so dumb. He doesn't know what he's doing. He has no idea. Like, why wouldn't he do this? Well, she can't see the real things that I'm dealing with and the full scope of it looking 30,000 feet down. And the same thing goes for us when we look at our politicians sometimes. You can't see what their struggles are. You know, um, even even just looking at, like, it was yesterday or so that the the – and not to throw shade on us, our, our team's 49ers, but oh no, you know that was a tough loss for I us. I promise never to talk about but, still hurt. <laughs> but you know, hey, give it up for Kansas City; they won, and you can't take anything away. But what I was getting to is, you know, this shooting bullshit mm -hmm. at oh, their yeah. at their celebration at their parade. It's like just so disgusting to think that anybody would start shooting in a crowd, whatever the reason was, whether it was terrorism, whether it was mental health, whether it was a gang issue, people just to start, start shooting like aimlessly into a crowd with not knowing where these bullets are traveling and shoot 20 something people, kill one. Um, I think that's what leads to a lot of the decline in my business as far as nightlife is people are really fearful because public gathering places are soft targets for people that do shit like this. But going back to like my relationship with the city and that is that they they put unnecessary blame on restaurants and nightclubs or nightclubs. If if a problem happens at a nightclub, shut the nightclub down. Don't deal with the person that was the bad actor that came and caused the problem. Don't don't really criminally prosecute them, but persecute the the nightclub owner because it's a nightclub. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, if the same problem happened, you know, the crazy thing is, and it's not trying to throw shade, and I'm not going to mention the specifics of which school, but it's a school very close to here. Public record, you can go pull up calls for service. Mm -hmm. There's more calls for service in some of our schools in this area than any restaurant bar combined. So oh. violent calls for service, you know, uh, assaults and those things. The numbers way far outweigh from a, from a high school than, say, a nightclub. And nightclubs get a lot of the bad rap if shit happens near a nightclub. I lost, I lost a business because of that.
And so for the health of our industry, I think it's important that we band together. And I think I learned a lot of that through COVID that we still have this cool relationship now where before a lot of the restaurant owners, we wouldn't talk. There's still a good 30 or 40 of us still in this WhatsApp group that still talk to this day, insurance issues, employee issues. So throughout COVID, creating these great relationships and having some better understanding with council members and, and, and leadership in our town, as well as for forming a more strong uh, relationship with the other business owners, I think was a huge benefit coming out of the COVID experience. Yeah, and that's cool. You, you took a, you made it a positive experience, right? I feel like a lot of gym owners, a lot of bar owners, a lot of restaurant owners, really you could go one or the other, right? It's a positive experience or a negative experience, but everything's always learning, you know? Um, and a part of learning, kind of switching gears a little bit, going a little bit back to your DJ career that you had as well, um, all the years you've had, man. I mean, you've had all these years of learning of in business and, and growing the nightclubs and all this stuff, but you've also been a DJ for, the, for X amount of years as well, right? So talk a little bit about now, fast forward all these years later, all the success you're having as a DJ and um, how it's impacting you now. I don't know. Maybe it's success in my own mind or just looks really Instagram versus reality. I don't think that anybody's, you know, knocking down my door to have me DJ at every festival on the continent. But <laughs> um, I, th- I, th- I just am a lover of music. I love music. And it's really cool to, like, have these country fans. Um, country fans are so... Um, the evolution of a country fan, like you kind of said, it was a little bit poppy. Mm-hmm. Like they know the '90s hip hop, and I'm like, I'm like that guy that's just like stuck in '90s hip hop, you know. And so it's really fun to go out and DJ mashups with '90s hip hop with new country tracks, um, to you know have this huge crowd reaction when I'm playing a song that everybody knows. Like I live for that crowd response. Um, so I don't think it's so much like I'm a great like technical DJ, which I think I'm decent. Um, but I'm good at reading the crowd and I'm good at um, what I do is I put myself in the crowd. What do what I want to hear? What's going to keep me like the energy going, keep the energy going while the the acts are changing over. Um, And it's kind of cool because, you know, there's been some times where I'm like, Hey, I think I'm getting a bigger reaction out of the crowd than some of these guys on stage are. So, um, and it's, it's, it's pretty shameless, man. It's like you can play, don't stop believing, you know, and everybody's going to put their lighters up and sing the song. <laughs> you can play, uh, you know, in the club by 50 Cent. People are going to start going. So it's really easy to know how to trigger them like that. But I like to throw some curveballs at people that, you know, it's like I try to think of what's a song that was really cool that they're not going to even be thinking of and hit them with a curveball. And that's a fun part. I think just all the years of DJing from club DJing to now doing these festivals, um, reading the crowd, reading the room, understanding the energy, and then kind of throwing those really surprise curveballs. What are some of those curveballs? What's like a song you can think of right now? Uh, like Bismarcky, like, you, you got what I need. Oh, like, yeah, that is, that is a <laughs> curveball. That's that a good curveball. one. Um, I don't know. I, I There was a DJ in, in the Bay that was doing like a, a, a mashup with uh, a Journey song and m- mixed it in with the two short songs. So I've seen what other DJs do online, TikTok or Instagram and uh throw some curveballs like that but there's yeah there's a lot you know i i like to i like to throw in vicente fernandez like oh. i i did a couple Good shows on. where i threw in some vicente <laughs> and, and believe it or not i mean hispanics really digging on country music and even even african-american people digging on country music is huge you're seeing i have a buddy named frank ray man he's uh he used to be a cop 
and he's been on the tour circuit with us for a while. He does a lot of shows. He's he's out of Nashville now, and uh, Mexican dudes up there just doing country music like like nobody's business, man. It's so cool to see, and then seeing guys like um, you know. Uh, Kane Brown, you know, and uh, just seeing like the diverse, the diversification of country music is really coming like full circle with really including everybody because country music is just so global now. Uh, people argue that, you know, hip hop might be the biggest, but I don't know. I feel like country is really taking over. It's coming up for sure. It's Morgan Wallen everywhere now. <laughs> yeah. Who's the uh, top three, top three people you've DJed with along tour? I know talking off camera, I know you've tour with a lot of people so top three you would say that you've been on tour with what do you mean like as far as like um are you djs with djs or, DJ or, or just artists that i've djed in front of uh artists you dj in front of and you talk a little bit about too short you talk you know what was ones. a tough one man is is not only does uh active uh active events which is my buddy steve he has other brands and there's another brand that's more of like a throwback hip-hop brand and what was really cool and intimidating was DJing um, before and after Little John. Mm. Oh. Number one, like it's 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 really bad for like a DJ to if you're if you're DJing with like say you're like an opening DJ and you're DJing for another DJ that's like the headlining DJ to come on. Just just specifically talking about DJs, it's really bad to play all the hits before that DJ. So you got to be creative. So you don't want to step on those toes. But when you're DJing for an artist like any artist, you cannot play their music while you're warming up the crowd because it's like you're stealing the thunder, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine being on a show with T-Pain, Too Short, Little John, Ying Yang Twins, oh, Flo Rida. I couldn't play shit. What, what year was this? <laughs> this was last year. Damn. Dude. Talk about a lineup. This was last year. I mean, <laughs> trying they, to go, okay, T-Pain was everywhere. How do I stay away from every one of their songs? That's like 90% of... Hip hop music, yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> DJing, you know, around Little John because he's just so energetic, man. Like Flow Rider, he follows me now on an IG, which is pretty cool. But Flow Rider, and I don't say this with any disrespect at all. It's just not, you know, my my brand of hip hop. I appreciate what he does, mm -hmm. but it's not like I'm gonna be riding around town only bumping Flow Rider. But to see him on stage and to see the energy this guy brings after this many years in the game is unreal. To see Too Short go on stage, and, and I've known Too Short from way back in the day when we were throwing parties at a place here in town called Holmes Playground and doing Too Short back in the late 80s, early 90s to the current. Um, cool story with Too Short is, you know, those there was like these buttons back, like Office Max had them, and they were like little red buttons, and they would like push them, and they would say something. Easy, mm -hmm. that easy buttons. The easy button. Yeah. So he made these <laughs> buttons that you push them. Bitch. You go, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so he did a show uh, at, at Lux a couple years ago, and he brought me one. He said, hey, man, check this out, Lou. This is what I got for you. He gave me one. But anyway, seeing Too Short then and seeing Too Short now, um, it was really cool to hear him talk about West Coast hip-hop, California artists, really throwing your support behind them and seeing the progression. I mean, imagine that they're making more money now than they did 30 years ago. They're making more That's money crazy. in the industry now. And, and the staying power of guys like E-40 and Too Short, where E-40 handed me his very first tape, you know, back when he was E-40 in the click. We were doing a show in San Jose, and I was opening up for him when I was a rapper. Um, he handed me his very first tape, The Click, and a lot of people don't even know hardly any of the songs off that, but that's, it's so cool to see now. I watch some of these 50 years of hip hop things, and I'm at home watching them, and I'm literally tearing up 
to see guys like Dre and guys like Warren G and guys like this to, to finally get their flowers and not be looked at as like just thug criminal gangster people. I mean, they were really painting a picture talking about what was going on in their life and literally tears were pouring down my eyes, just seeing people finally understanding what it was. They were just saying what was going on around them, but they were ridiculed for that stigma back then. Yeah. The stigma they had to like pave that way. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And nice. I kind of look at the parallel between my life and that. It's like, yeah, it was the, the fuck up that had two felonies and you know, all these bullshit interactions with the police at a young age, just being a knucklehead kid. And like at 35 to 48 years old, I'm still dealing with those same stigmas. Um, so now that I'm kind of getting some of my flowers, um, it, it, it kind of just, you know, I, I see the same. What is the people at home? Obviously they see the, the glitz and the glamor and see the girls here, the music, everything. Right. But what's the worst part about owning a nightclub? Oh man. It's kind of like an oxymoron, man, because it's dealing with drunk people. It's like, mm. that's our function, right? We're having them come out and drink in nightclubs and <laughs> popping bottles. And that. then it's like, you know, it's, it's having to deal with drunk people. And, and, you know, seeing sometimes you see the best in people and they're out to have a good time. But sometimes you just see the absolute worst in people. Mm. And it's, you know, having that drunk conversation with someone that you know is not going to remember a lick of what you said. So sometimes I have fun with it. Like, I'll just talk shit. Like, because they're so drunk and they're like, you know, some people might, we're never coming back. I hate you. It's the worst club ever. This place is horse shit. And like, and I'll just go off on them. And, and I'm knowing they won't remember a damn thing the next time they see me. Next week they're back. Yeah, so they're it's back. It's a regular. Louis, um, welcome back. Welcome but back. But yeah, that's the challenge. I mean, I think dealing with that, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, people, it's no secret, people get drunk, they get emotional, you know, Fresno's so small, and you run into someone who's now dating your ex-girl, and there's emotions, and then mm. people start pushing and shoving, fighting, whatever. Those are some of the worst parts, because we don't set out any one day to be like, how do we really fuck this up? How do we have a fight that, you know, shuts <laughs> do us get down the tonight? baby mama drama? You know, how do we end here? up on, how do, you've seen these bars where people are fighting in Fresno, and it's all over social media. Yeah, I have like, seen those, yeah. You just don't want those moments to happen. So um, it's really hard to rationalize with the drunk person. Like there's no – imagine, imagine being out with a night with your drunkest buddy on his 21st birthday. There's no rationalizing mm -hmm. with this guy. There's nothing you can say to make him understand that he's got to put his pants back on and he's in public, right? Um, so that's, that the hard, that's the hard part um, is dealing with that because yeah. the, the police department and ABC, they hold you accountable for all that debauchery. And what's really – tough and i think that a lot of people really don't realize is that like the whole uber the whole uber ride share thing that's relatively new to this industry has created a whole lot of i'm gonna get so plastered fucked up pop pills drink do whatever and they get so gone because well i don't i don't have to drive tonight so that's created a whole nother problem mm -hmm that we've seen in the past five years of where people get just too drunk. And then also the parking lot pimping. They're waiting for Ubers and, and in Fresno it's very limited. Sometimes at two o'clock in the morning, one thirty in the morning, you're waiting an hour for an Uber. So now they're drunk. They're overly drunk. They're waiting in the parking lot and you're having to expend extra resources to make sure everybody gets home safe. So it's like, your generation, you younger cats growing up, you're very responsible, a lot more responsible. My generation, we jump in the car and go, <laughs> right? We jump in a car and go. Your generation, much smarter than us, much more technology, much more uh, things at your disposal to be able to get home safely. But it's created a whole other problem. Mm. People just take that, you know, 
It makes sense, though, because you figure before, if you know you have to drive home, you're going to have one or two, call it good, right? But now oh, if you, you're taking an Uber, I'm yeah, game on, right? For most people, right? You're going hard. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it, and that's probably one of the most challenging things is seeing that, you know, people just, you never know. Like someone could walk in perfectly normal, talking to you, checking ID, everything's good, have a good night. Ten minutes later, they're plastered because they pre-gamed in the Uber on the way over. Oh, it finally hits. And and then it hits them. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it's like uh, the Henny talk, like the Four Locos buzz ball, huh? What's yeah. that movie with? Um, that's what you've been doing, huh? Get them to the Greek. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah you know the, the Jeffries. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's that's what happens. They they hit this or like even in the movie uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> where they take the quaaludes, the quaaludes. And, and it finally hits. Like that's <laughs> what happens to people. They come in and they lose their fucking mind because. You know, who knows? Or, or, or the girl that's going out and she doesn't want to eat all day long because she wants to look good in a dress and then starts pounding shots. Oh, yeah. And then mm. she's do it. So, yeah. Oh. It's a good thing and a bad thing. To but kill you. Yeah. For us, for the club, it's a bad thing. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting perspective, too, because, I mean, for us, too, like, you're like, shit, Uber, like you said, you know, you ain't got to worry about driving. Game on. Well, it's game <laughs> on, baby. Yeah. Well, you guys are part of the problem now, yeah. right? <laughs> You're always supposed to say, we're, you're always supposed to throw us under the bus like that, dude. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, yeah. Well, you know. If someone's an aspiring DJ, there's a lot of DJs here in Fresno, a lot of people that are into music. How do they go about getting into a club like this? How do they, what's the process? I think that's a really good question because I think that, you know, the reasons why we hire DJs or why we don't hire DJs um, has to do with their understanding. Well, I mean, I think it's – I always look for new guys. I want to bring new guys in. But there's a difference between, like, turning up and making the club lit versus understanding the business of a club and how it really works because the truth is i could hire the best djs in the world and bring them here but the the money is not in dancing the money is in drinking and so to afford these djs and to do what we do there's got to follow the recipe behind it and the recipe is is about dollars and cents so a, a good dj coming in would have to really understand the the environment of an owner's perspective it, if you have the you have to you have to give the crowd these nuggets of songs they want to hear these big songs these big records that people want to hear but you also have to know how to reel them back in to get people back drinking again because people are coming out for the social aspects they're coming out for the dancing but it's not like this newer generation your generation is not really out there just dancing you're not out there going dance like in the old school days people go out strictly to dance that's why you don't see really dance floors in any nightclubs anymore it's more like a bottle service or more of a social setting so a good DJ would understand the dynamics between what's making the club money. It's, it's less about who they are artistically, especially while you're a gig DJ, like working here locally for, for money to support whatever it is. Now, if you want to be a, a Tiesto or a, a Swedish House Mafia or whoever's big these days in, in, in DJing, then, then do that, but that's kind of on your own time, you know, until you get that notoriety where people are coming out specifically to hear your music, then you're at the mercy of the clubs who hire you because I think it's better to, to work in the industry while you're trying to become this DJ you want to be. Um, but every DJ is different. Some DJs want to be producers. Some DJs just want to be DJs because they, they do, you know, air conditioning work during the day and they DJ at night. Some, you know, work in the car business during the day and DJ at night. Um, so some of it's supplemental income, some of it's to get away from their wife or their girlfriend or get away from their kids. <laughs> like I just want to get out of the house. Um, and that's the cool thing about like being in this industry so long, being in the business so long, it's cool because like, I don't, I can go out and still feel that energy that you guys would feel when you go out, but I'm not paying for it. 
I'm making money while I'm doing it and I'm not drinking. You guys are going out to pay for it where I get it for free and I make money doing it. So yeah, good DJ is going to have to understand the real, the real methodology to what makes the club work. It's cool to hear, bro. It's cool to hear that there's actually like a science behind it. It's not just you play all the hot hits of the night and that's it, right? There's a science. It really has nothing to do with that. You know, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, the music really controls the crowd. Now, if you have a crowd that seems a little tense and, you know, you feel tension in there, then you really can't, you don't want to agitate them by making it more tense. You know, there's music that will, and I hate saying it, but it's true. I've never seen violence at a country concert. Thank you. Hundred percent. I've 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 never you know experienced some of those things, and it it does have to do with the music, and it's horrible to say that, um, because I'm West Coast hip hop till I die, but you can see the difference, and it's it's funny because people want to hear hip hop until some real hip hop heads show up, then they get nervous, and so that's that's what's funny, you mm, know. That makes sense. Yeah. It, it does, right? And it's kind of a, yeah. There's a whole another rabbit hole we can go well, down. Like on even that, with the Travis Scott too, like his energy's so crazy, but then that event happened. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, but you go there because you know you want a mosh pit. So but I know for me, I, I go to a country concert all day long. But going to the Travis Scott, he came here to Los Angeles, right? And I didn't go because I was kind of a little bit nervous about. Yeah, going, you know. I mean, that's so. a good point. Like I would go see, I would go see Little Wayne in Hollywood, but I wouldn't go see Little Wayne in Fresno, maybe. That's true. I would go cool. see I would go see Drake in Phoenix, but I wouldn't go see Drake in Fresno. Like I feel like because people just I don't know, you know what I mean? It, it's it's unfortunate we have to think that way, but violence does sometimes surround some of these concerts, and it's like I see a lot of these clubs bringing these performers here, but there's something about the way Fresno sees itself. I mean, us as people, the way we see Fresno ourselves kind of uh, puts us in that position to where we're fearful. And I think that's kind of been the decline of a lot mm. of nightlife mm. in Fresno is the fear factor. Because I feel like, too, on that topic, sometimes you see a lot of big artists, they have that Fresno date on there. And then, you know, a couple of weeks in, they're like, ah, we're skipping Fresno. You know, they, they don't come in. And do you think it's because of that same thing, that stigma? I mean, it's probably it's probably economics. It's economics and it's or lack of ticket sales or lack of promotion. There's some artists that come to Fresno. I had no idea they were going to be here. Like the other night there was a concert and I would have loved to go, but I had no idea that it was in town. Um, it could be just that I'm hyper-focused on what I'm doing that I didn't see it. But, um, yeah, I think that we do get skipped over for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's a lot. There's Again, the, the politics side. I, if I wanted to bring XYZ new rapper artist to Woodward Park for a show, it's not going to happen. Mm. And it has nothing to do with the desire or want or the people to support it. They just won't let it happen. I heard Woodward was given a lot of pushback, too, with certain things. Yeah. I think it was like with Grizzly Fest and stuff too, like, oh, noise complaints, or they'd make whatever reason it was, even yeah, though but I don't get it, it was something way when different. When I lived in San Diego and you're paying prime, prime rates to live in these high rise condos in San Diego, and they literally have concerts and festivals that go on till midnight, blaring all through downtown. Mm-hmm. So, noise, it, yeah, I just think it's a difference of, uh, it's a difference of uh, how cities operate and run. And I live right here, I live a stone's throw away from Woodward Park. So, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, as I'm getting older, I, I kind of feel that way too, but. Um, I think we need entertainment. We need more of it. We need more. We need to really open it up. And, and also, too, and I say this a lot, man, Fresno, you need to quit fucking it up for yourself. The people. That's true. The people. Expand on that. What do you mean by that, though? I Go think ahead. until we stop glorifying this fucking I don't care mentality, this, you know, let's be ratchet as fuck mentality, this pop pills. <laughs> Sexy red. And be drunk mentality. Sexy until red. we stop glorifying that, you know, it, it's going to continue. 
And it really is, um, if you really break it down, it really is just a play on people that maybe don't have enough self-worth or, or opinions of themselves to be better. Maybe there's no one in their corner, you know, hyping them up saying they're going to be good and they rely on this shit and they, they take these songs and they think that it's real life. You know, they, they hear the lyrics on, on some of this music and they think they're, that it's real. It's not, it's a lot of it's entertainment. They'll tell you, they'll tell you it's entertainment. And I think that that's part of the problem is that, you know, we're kind of preyed upon for not being more as, as intelligent or as advanced as other markets. Um, we stay divided. We stay at each other's throats, you know, and I think that that really plays into why a lot of people make decisions on because there's things that I see a lot of people that will do in other markets that they won't do here. You know, I wonder why we're like even in North Fresno, it seems like a bigger decline on going out because of. It's a safety thing. And, and like what I just said about the parade, what happened, that doesn't help people's psyche. You know, it doesn't help when you see on the news that nightclubs were being targeted and nightclubs were being shot up, you know, a couple years ago. There was like a new nightclub having some type of mass shooting every other night. And I think yeah. that that really freaks people out. So I think, you know, and I've mentioned before, like we take a lot of extra measures to make people feel safe from a, a standpoint of having like metal detectors and, and magnetometers when you walk through the door. Like we really try to make people feel safe. And it's just really, you know, I don't know how I could reach the people in Fresno because not everybody's, some people can look at me and tell me to, you know, kick rocks and some people might really, you know, understand what I'm trying to get across. And the point is like, if we want to be better, we have to be better. It mm -hmm. starts with us. It starts with the people that live here. And, and know that no matter where you start or how your whatever cards you're dealt with, those don't have to be your whole story. You can really shape and mold where you want to be. That, that's like you the know? mayor campaign right there. That's, uh, that's your running campaign. Right? I mean, no, if you're watching <laughs> this at home, we have a new election <laughs> campaign coming up here. No, Louis Everick. No, <laughs> no but, but I think that just goes back to, you know, uh, having good role models. And, it, you know, if you don't have a good mom or a dad or like for me, like my sister, even my sister is like one of my biggest cheerleaders. Behind my mom and my grandmother, my sister's just, man, she's always hyping me up. Always. She's always in my corner. And, and some people don't have that. And so we've, we've got to find ways or, or there's got to be more people available to, to be that to people, you know, yep. it's tough, you know, it takes a community to raise a child, man. And, yep. and we've got to do better. We've got to show better. We've got to be better because there's so much talent here. There's mm -hmm. so many talented people. Like there's no, the, what separates you guys from the number one or number two podcast in the country is just getting that, getting that shot. Cause you guys are on, you guys are on point with that. You guys have a great thing going Appreciate and that. you have to believe that you got to have that delusional, just delusional crazy you know obsessive confidence that says i'm gonna do this and this is gonna be me you fired that. me up yeah you did no 100 percent, man you fired me up. we talked about it a lot too because there's a lot of podcasts out there right a lot of podcasts out there they start and i saw like a study where after like five episodes 80 percent or 90 percent of podcasts are gone and then oh, after 10 or 15 episodes then the number gets even crazier you know but people just think because we do it it's going to blow up like if you build it they will come that mentality is so dated if you build it <laughs> you have to build it they might come you have to market you have to push you have to innovate you have to you have to be relentless there's no stopping when you start something you can't stop and that's where people they, they throw in the towel because they did it five times you know, a lot of people in town, like, that got record deals. There's a lot of super talented artists that have come out of Fresno that have gotten record deals, no matter what genre of music it is, that 
they get their deal, they think they've arrived, they get a big head about it, they blow up and don't realize all the work involved and they let it go. Telling you, bro, the election's coming up and you fire us up, man, and you have a lot of game as well, man. And uh, here in the All This podcast, we always have a signature question that we always like to ask and, and finish off with, man. And I think it's going to really hit home for you and it really hit home for people watching at the end because obviously they've seen throughout the podcast and throughout your journey as well, right? Like from growing up, I know you grew up somewhere around Tower District in a duplex. You, sh- you shared the house with a lot of your family members, grew up Hispanic, grew up, went to prison, cancer, all this crazy adversity that you went through. But I want you to take Lewis back to prison, Lewis, right? Like before any of the businesses, before anything, you, you knew everything was going to work out. What's some advice you would give then, Lewis, on how that you're going to make it out? I mean, I've answered questions like this before, and I think the main thing is, is like I would tell myself it's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. Um, it's going to be challenging. There's going to be things that you don't expect to happen. There's going to be people that let you down. There's going to be uh, even role models or people you look up to that are going to let you down. Um, it would just it, it, it prepare myself for those losses. I think, you know, a lot of people don't know how to deal with loss. They don't know how to deal, you know, with everybody knows what it feels like and, and knows how to deal with success, but they don't know how to really process the loss. Um, so I think that it's just knowing that the good doesn't last forever and the bad doesn't last forever. So no matter whatever tough times you're going through, they're not going to last. Whatever pain you're going through, whatever adversity you're dealing with, it's not going to last. And then also when you lose, it's not to take that, that, that mentality that like this poor me mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. you got to take accountability. You got to, you got to constantly remind yourself that like, nobody's going to save you, but you. You know, you're the only person that's really going to save you. No matter how much you want it for you, the people around you or your kids or your family or your friends, your spouse or whoever, like you have to take accountability for you. And no matter how wrong people do you or how you feel, you just can't have this victim mentality. The victim mentality is what paralyzes people. It keeps people from realizing their full potential. And I think that that's what I would tell myself is that be prepared for the shit you didn't expect. And then when it comes your way, find a way out of it like there's always a way out of it and keep pushing keep 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 challenging keep asking questions keep learning never think that you know what you have today is what you're going to have forever I've lost it got it lost it got it and I could lose it again and get it all back because I know the recipe and the recipe is is to be relentless and and to know that you know it's for a bigger purpose for me it's for my family 100%, man. He talked about having the recipe. You definitely have the recipe, and it's so cool to see how you spit all the recipe today. You spit all this game today, man, and and also you're passing recipe on to your family, your sons as well. And um, for people at home that want to visit your establishments, obviously uh, we're going to have – we're here in one establishment. It's a great great spot. Where can they find you, and and, and what's some spots they can experience the Lewis Everett Hospitality Group? (laughs) Yeah, so you can find Woodward um, on Instagram. It's the Woodward Fresno, and then – the vixen is the vixen um on instagram mia is i believe mia fresno that's a new one uh sunset is sunset fresno everything on instagram we're high if you don't see us and i'm not doing my job because we we are out there we we market harder than anybody but uh yeah we're highly visible on social media uh, my own personal page is lewis everick l-e-w-i-s-e-v-e-r-k you can find me DM me, text me. You could Google my phone number and find it. I'm highly accessible. So, yeah, that's where to find us. When, when oh, is yeah. uh, MIA opening, by the way? And we're shooting for, like, the last weeks of March, first weeks of April. 
you know, there's always a couple of snags, um, but there's no rush. I just want to do it right. Yeah. Sure, man. Oh, yeah. You're doing it right. You did all this other stuff right. And uh, we appreciate you so much today. I know we 100%. said it a couple times, and we'll say it a million times again, man. We appreciate you. We know you're super busy. I, I can only imagine your schedule running all your establishments that you guys going on, man. So we appreciate it. Appreciate all the game you dropped today. And uh, we appreciate you responding back to our DM uh, to come on the pod today, man. So we appreciate Absolutely, it. man. Thanks for having me. It was a good time. And lastly, for you guys at home that are watching, we appreciate all the love and support you guys share us every week. Uh, make sure to like, subscribe, follow us, uh, give us some love, man. Give us some love to the, our guest today, our amazing guest we had, Mr. Lewis Everick. And uh, like we always say, we'll see you on the next one. Like and subscribe, baby. Peace.